Away Mets fans, welcome to episode 184 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. This week, we have an interview with Newsday's Mark Carrig, an exploration of the Mets career of Desi Relliford, a new foreign rooting interest for our listeners, and much, much more. But first, I'm your new host, Brian Salvatore. Hi, guys. I'd like to thank Eric Simon, Chris McShane, and Jeffrey Paternostro for their help and encouragement in getting the podcast up and running under some new management. I've been a Mets fan my whole life and a podcaster for a decade now, so I think we're going to have a lot of fun on this show. But I do want to let you guys know that I do not have a scouting background. This is not going to be me trying to do what Jeffrey did with the show. Um, I don't want to do a poor man's Jeff impression. I'd rather make the show something different and something unique. And in addition to that, we at Amazing Avenue have an incredibly talented staff that has all sorts of interests and um, specialties and talents, and it would be really foolish to not take advantage of that. So over the next few weeks, you'll be hearing old friends stop by as well as meet some new members of the staff. And I think we put together a really fun show for our first new episode. So let's get right to it. Mark Carrig is the Mets beat reporter for Newsday. You've probably heard him join the WOR booth to talk with Howie and Josh about a variety of Mets subjects over the course of the last two seasons. Fun fact, his last name isn't Craig, despite what many people have said on Twitter and on lesser broadcasts. Uh, If you don't already, you should follow him on Twitter at M-A-R-C-C-A-R-I-G. That's at Mark Craig. And here's a conversation between Mark and our own Chris McChain. All right. Joining us on Amazing Avenue Audio is Mark Carrig of Newsday. He's been the Mets beat reporter there for the last few seasons. Mark, you're uh, you're in California now. How are you doing? I am in California now. I'm fine. I'm just trying to beat the traffic uh, from L.A. to San Diego. So we're going to see how that goes. Yeah, that's uh, you're in your home state. <laughs> I am, kind of, sort of. I mean, Northern California is pretty different from Southern California. You know? Right. I'm wearing a Warriors t-shirt right now. And I'm looking at all these sorry-ass Laker fans. I see it. Because um, <laughs> I hate them. I do. I hate them with a passion. So, I might have been the one guy actually rooting against Kobe on his last game. Only begrudgingly at the end that I decided, all right, maybe I'll kind of, sort of root for him. And then he did the Black Wampa thing. And then I hated him again. So. <laughs> well, yeah, that uh, that sounds about right. Your Warriors are seeming like they're weathering the storm. You know, uh, I'm no NBA expert, but but do you think they can survive and, and win a championship with or without Steph? I, I, you know, I, I think obviously their chances are way better with Steph. You know, uh, I don't know. I think that's a it's a little pricey without him, but I think they are so deep and so good, and we're seeing that, obviously, here without him. I can't remember the stat off the top of my head, but I had during the game last night, they were like plus 30 or something without him, which is stupid. You know, like they're, they're you know, still able to do what, they're, what they've done all season long for the most part, and it's kind of fun to watch. You know, it's a good team with a lot of depth, a lot of talent. And Draymond Green is an awesome player that's so amazing he doesn't get his deal. But that's not how they hear nor there. Yeah. Well, uh, 
I hope it goes well for you. I have no, I have no horse in the race. I know that they, uh, you know, as a neutral observer, they're they're sort of the uh, the top team right now. But it's not one of those teams that's been good for so long that it's annoying. <laughs> not yet. Yeah. Not that, yet. Although I, I've seen some Twitter backlash already, which is kind of hilarious. It's all these morons assuming that Warrior fans are bandwagon types. Right. Which is like saying Mets fans are bandwagon types. Like. You know, if there's one thing that I think a Mets fan base and a Warrior fan base can share is that they used to see a lot of crap over a long period of time. You know, like they've been soon fed a lot of bad stuff, and you know, for the most part, stuck around. Warriors were horrendous for uh, a very long period of time, and always had uh, you know a lot of people in the building watching them play. You know, I listened to a lot of it. Um, you know watched a lot of it, as much as I could anyway, without wanting to blow up. So, um, you know, uh, it's a pretty loyal fan base. But, so, yeah, it's not, it hasn't been, they haven't been good for a long enough period of time, I guess, for people to get too obnoxious quite yet. Yeah, well, that that's good. Uh, so sort of on that California thing a little bit, you, you know, you're in a different part of the state, but when you do make the Northern California trips, what else What else does a Mark Kerrig homecoming look like uh, when you get out there, when you're working, but also, you know, back back uh, where you grew up? Well, it's kind of funny because, I don't know, it, it's, when I go there, I actually never stay in a hotel. Uh, my brother is still out there, my sister is still out there, my dad's still out there. So, you know, I grew up with, uh, where they... There's three cousins of mine that like, grew up in town next door, and there was four of us. So, like, at our high school, I think one of us graduated every year for seven straight years. Um, and I go home, and, you know, I see, like, old classmates facing on, like, the bus billboards, you know, because there's still real estate in town now. Um, so a lot of people are still around, so that's always cool. And, you know, went into people like that when I get home. Uh, you know, like I said, like, I usually stay with my brother, stay with my sister. Um, it's good to see them. My sister's not uh, a daughter, so um, it's always good to see my niece. Uh, and then, you know, when you go to work, it's kind of weird because, you know, a lot of the people there are folks like, you know, started in the business when they back when. You know, like, there's a couple guys that, you know, around the baseball team here where, you know, my first memories of them were like all of us in, in the newsroom answering telephones uh, and taking down high school sports scores. You know, like in, in, in the office of the local paper. So uh, it's always fun uh, to see those guys, too, because but now they're, like, covering the team with their columnists, and they're on the TV and the radio out there. And, you know, it's just kind of fun to see them and kind of <laughs> look back at when, you know, we started, you know, covering high school football games and answering phones. And, you know, kind of doing what, you know, you have to do to start in this business, or at least what you used to have to do to start a business. So... Uh, yeah, and then I love New York. I mean, the food in New York is like outstanding and amazing. Um, there isn't a single decent burrito to be had in New York City. <laughs> so, so the first thing that I do is actually make sure that uh, you know at some point or another during my trip to Bay Area, that, you know, that we get a good burrito in there because, uh, like I said, in New York, it's not. I, I'm too big 
not possible. I don't know what the difference is. I could just be, uh, you know, being unreasonably snotty about it, but <laughs> they haven't found a good burrito. I have not found a burrito that's worth a damn. Uh, and I moved to the city in 2009, so, um, you know, maybe somebody listening can give me a heads up about something that's possible, but so far, not so much. So when I get home, the burrito run is a big deal, too. You know, I just got done in and out actually. That's another one. <laughs> so, yeah, there there um, you go. Yeah, that's more or less it. You know, see a lot of family. It's always fun when I get out to the door. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Is it is it possible to be objective about the ballparks in California, ranking them? Uh, you know, since you're on your yeah, way to, you're on your way to Petco sure. right now. and There's some, there's some great ones here. You know, uh, I mean, I think Dodger Stadium is my favorite, though. I mean, Dodger Stadium might be my favorite in all of baseball. Like, really? Yeah, I, I just I love the place. I think, you know, it's it's a nice ballpark. It, it's sort of like, uh, it's, it's held up well considering when, it's been, when it was built. I think, you know, it really is kind of like you step back in time a little bit when you walk in there. Um, yeah. That's mostly good. Um you know, they, they've done a nice job keeping up with the place. Like, you know, kind of like Fenway in the American League when they did renovations to it. You know, they did a nice job of keeping that balance between you know, keeping the original spirit of the ballpark and, and you know its original look and its original feel, but also putting some amenities in there that um, you know modern fans would expect. So, to me, I, I think Dodger Stadium is number one, not just in California, but. Like, you know, when I break ballparks before, it's always been up there. It's, it's not number one, but it's really, really close. So um, that would be number one for me. And you know, AT&T Park um, is outstanding. I mean, it's ridiculously good. Um, they did a really nice job renovating Anaheim, but I, I think I put Petco three, Anaheim four, um, and then uh, Oakland five. So. Uh, and you asked if I could be unbiased. There you go. I grew up an A's fan, and you know, obviously, uh, Oakland Coliseum running at an easy dead last in this race. Yeah, I think I think even for people who haven't been to any of them, uh, I think they could be comfortable with ranking that one last right now. <laughs> but I will say, growing up, growing up, uh, not a bad place. Actually, a great place to watch a ball game. Uh, you know, the food was decent before the Raiders moved back to town to ruin the off-field. Uh, like, it was a pretty place, and uh, it's certainly better than Kendall to Park, the total dumb. So, you know, anyway. Yeah, I think back that's... Back in the day, it's not so bad, but now it is, uh, it is well past the time. That, that's relatable for Mets fans with Shea. Like, they're, on, a day to, on a day-to-day basis, there's nothing that I go, oh, you know, I... I I don't want this great city field thing. Um, but there is, there is sort of this memory, of, you know, and the environment and the larger crowd and all that sort of stuff. And that's where you grew up going to games. So I think, I think that's relatable. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know what? And to the Mets credit, they did a nice job with city field. Um, a really nice job. It just seems like, like a really comfortable place to go watch a game. I've gone as a fan just, just to go. And, uh, and I always thought it was a super comfortable place. And obviously, the food there is tremendous. Like if somebody goes to other ballparks, I'm not sure that there's another stadium in the country that can match up with, with City Field as far as uh, 
quality offerings for food. Um, there's good food all over the place there. So um, the Mets fans are lucky in that regard. They, they've got a nice ballpark and um, certainly not lacking for good things to eat either. No, not at all. <clears throat> so uh, that, the last couple of things that I wanted to touch on today, I think can, they, they might tie into each other because I think I know the answer to one question and I think it has to do with the answer to, to another one. But uh, all right. generally, when you're anywhere in the country, what what's the best off-day activity or, or leisure activity? And if the answer is golf, <laughs> then what? Was the cesspit a story? Uh, was was that your favorite thing that you've written in the last year or so? Oh my gosh, am I that predictable? I, yeah, it's totally golf. It's totally golf. Of course, it's golf. <laughs> I'm off down the road. I'm not in the Bay Area. The one time we had him off on the road was in the Bay Area, and we ended up in a wine country with my brother, his wife, uh, a couple other like friends, and so yeah, doing stuff like that. Title rights pretty often, but for the most part, yeah, uh, golf's always good. Um, you know, I, I usually will, will take my clubs with me for a trip or two, and it so happens I'm looking at my golf clubs right now for the rearview mirror, <laughs> a rental car, because uh, you know, talking about maybe trying to get on the Tory Fines at some point in the next couple of days. So, uh, yeah, man, off day golf, um, not the worst. And as far as like my favorite story, I think that's this was a fun story. I don't know if it was my favorite story, but it's up there. Uh, well, what were some of the other? Well, some of the other different stories that I've written over the last year. Uh, oh my gosh, it put me on the spot, man. I, I think like a lot of the stuff I wrote during the playoffs last year was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, in yeah, the time leading up to it. And even just the games, like I, I remember thinking to myself after a lot of the games last last October, uh, just thinking, my gosh, that was really compelling. You know, like that was a great game. And I remember worrying a lot that, you know, yeah, I hope I, I you know, did that justice because that game was awesome. And I think people will remember it. I remember thinking that uh, after game five of the NLDS, actually, that that's what it really I got in my mind, walking out of Dodger Stadium, thinking to myself, man, I hope I wrote that well because, uh, you know, that game was awesome. That was just a great baseball game. So I would say a lot of that stuff it happened a lot uh, at the end of last year. It was my favorite thing that I've written. But certainly, uh, you know, the sensitiveness on that off day, or I wasn't even on off day, actually. I think they went after a workout. It was an off day for me. I didn't know it worked out, but anyway, right, uh, right, yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. Nice, and I guess before we before we go, I'll, I'll go with one very Mets specific question. It's something that we talked about in St. Lucie. Uh, it's still a topic, although Degrom seems to be going in the right direction. Are we still talking about Degrom and Harvey's velocities uh, two months from today? <laughs> Are we? I don't know. What do you think? I mean, now, since we got you on the line, do you think we're talking about the velocity two months from today? Well, I think, I, I hope we're talking about it being, you know, just downright awesome and not, uh, you know, still below where it is. I, I, I'm willing to buy that with DeGrom, it's the lat 
thing and all the stress of everything else he had going on, you know, understandably with, with his family. Um, so yeah, I, I, I have a little more faith in that and Harvey, Harvey, it's weird. So I don't, if I had a guess, I would say, yes, we are still talking about those things, uh, and whether or not they can be very good or great pitchers, you know, despite it, but I hope I'm wrong. It, it makes me think of like a conversation I had with a major league pitcher in spring training. He said something that, uh, you know, I've heard some version of this before, but it's stuck in the back of my head for some reason this spring. And he goes, the crazy thing is like when you show up as a, as a pitcher to spring training, there's always that thing in the back of your head that you wonder, can you still throw hard? And until you have that answer, until you go out there and actually do it, it's something that sticks in the back of your mind. So, you know, this is a pitcher who goes pretty hard, by the way. So anyway, I thought about that a lot lately. And I kind of wonder, you know, if if maybe some of it, you know, is psychological in a sense. Maybe this is getting into, let's say, Harvey said, for instance. Maybe it's not, you know, strictly a physical issue, but maybe a combination of both. You know, you've seen it. Well, a lot of times when uh, you know, pitchers are trying to throw hard, like they'll overcompensate and it becomes a mechanical thing. But the root of that mechanical thing is this idea in the back of their head that they got to throw hard and they got to try to throw hard. So, uh, I don't know. I kind of wonder if some of that stuff is play. Like, all of this is obviously guesswork. I have no idea uh, what those guys are actually feeling. You know, if one or both of them is, is uh, you know, hiding some kind of injury or the last thing with the ground was like worse than he'd let on or whatever. Like, I have no idea. And, and really nobody does. Um, so, I don't know. All you can go is on his track record. Obviously, both of those guys have a track record of being able to go pretty hard. I can buy a little bit, you know, of maybe the idea that you know, that they had such a heavy workload last year. And, you know, and I think what we may be seeing now isn't so much just the workload in the innings itself, but, you know, some of the fallout from that, like changing up the schedule, not throwing as much in, in, in the off season, delaying some of the start of their work, that kind of thing, you know. And then you, you put that in there with the fact that, like, the weather taking a while to warm up. You know, we talk a lot, you know, uh, about weather the bats, but I think sometimes it can have an impact on pitching, too, um, just as far as getting those arms in shape and ready to go and getting reps and all that stuff. So, um, you know, maybe it's a combination of all of this stuff. So I guess that's a really long answer to a simple question. But yeah, I, I think there's a chance that we're still talking about these guys' the velocity uh, two months from now. And I think the biggest distinction, though, is uh, people make such a huge deal of velocity. They're really, you know, if you're getting results, the only time it's a bigger deal is what? It's an indication of injury, I think. You know, and in the case of DeGrom, like, there was an injury. In the case of Harvey, uh, there wasn't an outward sign of one. So um, I guess if the velocity still fits with him, it's certainly worth keeping an eye on. So um, is, it, is it still a topic of conversation in the next two months? Probably. Um, totally possible, and I think that's probably just a function of who those guys are and what that velocity means in both of their cases. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Well, with, with that... Uh... I love that response. That is awesome. <laughs> like, yeah. We got, we got a podcast to run here. 
Wow. You could have told me to talk shorter. <laughs> well, uh, but we do appreciate you coming on again. And uh, again, everybody, this is Mark Carrig, Newsday. You can find him on Twitter at Mark Carrig. Uh, that is how you pronounce his last name. That is, despite the commercials on the radio. <laughs> Josh Lewin it drives him crazy. He says it every time I walk in there. Because, you know, obviously we got their headsets on, they can hear the two broadcast on the radio, and he always, like, points at his, ear, his earphones and his headset and looks at me and rolls his eyes. Like, where did he get that fixed? So I appreciate <laughs> Josh having my back on that. But you are correct in your pronunciation. Yes. Well, uh, thanks again, as always. And, and yes, I, I, I forgot to mention that credential. You can hear Mark on the radio during every Mets game that he works, I believe, right? That's correct. Yes. So. Right. All right, Mark. Until next time. Okay. Thanks. Hey, everyone. It's time for your This Week in SNY Minute as part of Mason Avenue Audio. My name is Steve Schreiber. So this week, uh, we're going to be looking back to Wednesday evening's game against the Reds. Our favorite person in the world, Keith Hernandez, had a little problem while he was announcing the uh, lineup for the Reds. He wasn't really sure how to pronounce the name of Reds left fielder Scott Schebler. So he'd said it a couple times and uh, didn't really go very well. So let's go to the clip. And we'll take the Reds' defense now. Gosh, we're getting it out quick, and that's also brought to you by Coors Light. And I'm going to do this. Scott Schlebler? Schlebler. Schlebler in left field. I've had a tough time the whole series with this guy's name, folks. Folks, if you could have only heard between innings all the attempts that, that Keith was making to get that name right. I mean, he worked so hard at it. I want, I want you to get... Credit for the effort. How brave I was uh, on the air to expose myself you, like that. You schlubbed the shred. <laughs> We're tough graders, but you get credit for that. That was a good effort. We have a new segment called Forgotten Mets, where we take a look back at a Met whose career was perhaps not all that noteworthy. This week, Kate Feldman takes us back to the last time that the Mets were the defending National League champions. Hey, this is Kate. We are here with today's segment of Forgotten Mets Players. Um, I When I grew up, I was playing softball every night, and then later I worked nights, and I missed a lot of Mets baseball. So Brian has decided to give me or you know, one of our other Mason Avenue podcasters the name of a player every week, and we're just going to research him. So today we have Desi Relliford, who I had never even heard of. He played one season with the Mets in 2001, which I was was nine. I can do math, I swear. So I'm allowed to not have heard of him. He hit 302, 364, 472 in 120 games, which was the best of his career. So thank you, Desi, for that. Um, he seems kind of just like a guy, like there's not a whole lot interesting except for his May 17th pitching appearance 
This guy was a utility infielder. He, in a 15-3 blowout by the Padres, he had a perfect ninth inning, which I thought was kind of funny because I like pitchers, or I like players pitching. It's just one of my favorite things about baseball. He had a strikeout and two fly balls, and it was fun. It was whatever. Um, he just seems like a guy, and the best part of my research was going back to 2001 and looking at all these stadium names that I had, and Enron Field will never not be funny, nor will Qualcomm Stadium. Um, I'm looking at all my stuff. This guy, he played for nine years. He jumped around a lot. Played for Philly, the Padres, and then the Mets, and then left and went to Seattle and the Royals and Colorado and Texas. Eleven years. Seven National League teams, four American League teams. That's a lot of teams. I hadn't actually looked at those numbers yet. Um, yeah, he's just interesting. The best part is that when I, I found his LinkedIn accidentally, it was like right under his BRF page. And from 2001 to 2010, he was the CEO of Six Hole Records, which was True School Hip Hop, and the website is a MySpace page. And he now lives in Jacksonville with his wife and is a holistic nutrition counselor. So I guess that's what happens when you only spend a year with the Mets? I don't know. He was 27. Um, it, was a, it was a decent team. He kind of filled in for a lot of people. He played 120 games. And that was, I mean, Alfonso and Ordonez at second, filling in for them in Ventura. Played a lot, kind of, I guess, like a, what we have for Flores and Campbell. We have a lot of utility guys right now, apparently. And he was fun, and now I know the guy's name. And I will probably not remember it after this week, but that's okay, because this was our segment of Forgotten Mets Players. And now Aaron York is going to check in with us on what the Mets have been doing, or rather not doing, against left-handed starting pitching so far this year. Hi, I'm Aaron York. Let's talk about how the Mets have fared against left-handed pitching so far this season. As many of you know, it hasn't really been pretty for the Mets against left-handed pitching, although that's one of the few things not to like about the team so far in 2016. They've been great on the mound even in the bullpen, and against right-handed pitching, this is a team that has really crushed the ball. But starting on April 13th, when Adam Conley took the hill for the Marlins, the team hasn't done well against left-handed starters. On that day, Conley pitched six scoreless innings with nine strikeouts and only one walk and four hits allowed against the Mets. And they were still able to win that game, fortunately, thanks to a Kevin Ploiecki two-RBI single against the Marlins bullpen. But then on, Brand on April 26th, Brandon Finnegan for the Reds came on and pitched six and one-third innings and allowed three runs with five strikeouts, three walks, and five hits allowed. And that would have been even better for Finnegan if Brian Price didn't leave him in to face Juanes Cespedes in that fateful spot when Cespedes was able to tie the game with a three-run home run. After the game, Price said he left Finnegan in not because of Cespedes's struggles against left-handers last year, but just because Cespedes was 0 for 4 in his career against Finnegan, which seemed like a really dubious reason. But if 
Price had taken Finnegan out of the game, it would have been much better for Finnegan. It would have looked even worse for the Mets against left-handed starters. And then on May 1st, Madison Bumgarner pitched six scoreless innings against the Mets. Seven strikeouts, three walks. Michael Conforto, who's been red hot, looked really bad in that game against the left-handed Bumgarner. Now, that's a really good left-handed starter. That game doesn't mean anything when we're talking about Michael Conforto, his long-term success against lefties. It's just something to point out that, hey, this team has faced a lot of right-handed starters. Obviously, there are more right-handed starters in the game than lefties, but still, they've faced an unusual amount of right-handed starters so far in that the offense is kind of built to to mash on these right-handed starters, and when there's more lefties going up against the Mets, they might struggle a little bit. They might stop hitting three home runs a game or whatever it is they've been doing since the middle of April when they started on this hot streak of hitting that has fortunately gone on for a really long period of time, and hopefully they'll be power hitting to go along all season. Now, some of the hitters who could go see their performance drop when the Mets see more left-handed pitching. One is Neil Walker, who, as we know, he tied the Mets record for home runs in April with nine. The thing about that that was really surprising is three of those happened against left-handed pitching after Walker hit zero home runs against left-handed pitching last year. But the thing is, those of those three home runs, none of them came against the left-handed starters we talked about before. So they all came against relief pitchers, and at least one of those was against a Phillies relief pitcher who maybe he's not even supposed to be in the major leagues right now if the Phillies were a competitive baseball team, uh, despite their record. They do have a competitive record, but we know the Phillies are still in rebuilding mode, despite what their record says. Lucas Duda is another guy. His on-base percentage is not what we want it to be right now. It's hovering around 300 but he has gotten his strikeouts down. It's right below 20% at 19%, which is a good sign. And his walk rate is 7%. It's nothing to be alarmed with, just that with all these right-handed pitchers, you'd expect Lucas Duda to be doing a little better than he's been doing right now. It was great to see him hit his fifth home run of the season last night. But, with again, with all the, uh, with all the righties that the Mets have been seeing, Lucas, Lucas Duda you'd expect to see him doing a little better since he doesn't have to deal with the lefties as much. Now that there's going to be more lefties, do we see him drop further in his production or do we see him rise up to what he has been doing the last two years where he's been a 25 home run or a 30 home run hitter right around there for the past two seasons? I think he looks fine right now even when there's more lefties I think he'll hit more against righties to balance that out so I wouldn't worry too much about Lucas Duda and another guy is David Wright who you'd think because of his injury last year and because there's been few lefties for him to beat up on you'd think he would struggle a little bit but instead he's been great hitting 266 383 468 for the season and just hit his third home run of the season last night over the old city field wall, which is a great sign. So it's hard to imagine a right could maybe get even better if there's a few soft, more soft-tossing lefties that he can crush the ball against in the future. So overall, the Mets have been really hot. 
Some of that's because there have been so many right-handed pitchers against them, but besides what Neil Walker's been doing, most of it looks relatively sustainable. I know David Wright's been a big question mark, but if he didn't spend most of last year on the disabled list, would we really be surprised with what he's doing this year? It probably wouldn't be that out of the ordinary. And then there's Ioannis Cespedes, who has just continued to be a monster, which a lot of Mets fans aren't surprised with because they've all they've seen is this superhero Cespedes where he's hitting the ball out of the park all the time. But more skeptical fans, and I'm one of them, are, are really surprised that he's, again, over 1,000 in OPS and with a slugging percentage approaching 700, even though we're out of the euphoria that was last year's pennant race. And one more stat I wanted to throw out there. I just read a Beyond the Box Score article that says the Mets are leading the majors in hard hit rate for the second straight year. They're hitting the ball hard 35% of the time this year compared to 30% of the Major League Baseball average. And maybe that has something to do with the decreased walk rates from players like Walker and Duda is that the Mets are just seeing a lot of balls that they can put into play. And maybe that's because they're playing teams like the Braves and the Reds, who don't have quality starting pitching to throw out there, I'm not sure. And those teams might be even worse in the bullpen, as we've seen the Mets really crush the Reds' bullpen when they came to town. So, that's another good sign. Maybe it helps explain why the Mets aren't walking as much, and certainly why they're hitting so many home runs, is that they're hitting the ball harder than most of the other teams in baseball, and that's made them so much fun to watch this early in the season. So, that is your report on the Mets against left-handed pitching. Hopefully, when they start seeing more lefties, they don't drop off too much, although this has been a pretty amazing streak of offense that we've seen from the boys in orange and blue. I will see you next time. This has been Aaron York. On Tuesday night, after the Mets lost to the Braves 3 nothing. I sat down with co-host Chris McShane to talk about the week in Mets. So take it away, past versions of Brian and Chris. All right, Chris and I are back, and we are going to talk about the week in Mets or something along those lines. So um, tonight we are recording on Tuesday evening. We just watched the Mets lose 3 nothing to the Atlanta Braves with yet another... Um, I don't want to say a bad Matt Harvey start because he was one out away from going uh, six innings with three runs, which, you know, it's a quality start stat there. But certainly uh, not what we've come to expect from Matt Harvey thus far in his career. In fact, this season, all told, Harvey has not looked up to his uh, admittedly very high standards. He has not struck out more than seven in a game. He has not gone a game without a walk. And he has not gone a game without giving up at least two earned runs. So, Chris, are you at all worried about Matt Harvey? A little bit. I mean, it's not it's not something that has me thinking that he's, you know, suddenly lost it or not going to bounce back this season. If I had a bet, I think he's still going to look like Matt Harvey by the time we get to the middle of the year, uh, and certainly by the end of the year. But but the combination of the velocity drop that you see across the board with his pitches, uh, sort of the lack of sharpness with some of the breaking stuff in, in his starts generally. I, I actually was at the start where he looked his best, the the one pre, uh, 
prior to this one. The Cincinnati start? Yeah. And, you know, he gave up the leadoff home run and, and whatever, and you know, that, that sort of thing can happen. But he looked a lot like Matt Harvey. You know, he was hitting 96, 97 regularly. Um, you know, he didn't average that high, but he was throwing that fast. Uh, he had that sort of overpowering look to his pitches. They had movement on them. You know, even if the breaking stuff wasn't great, the fastball really was. Uh, and right now, that's the outlier mm-hmm. in this season. Um, you know, you you take the collection of the, the starts that he's had so far, and, you know, a lot of them have been more of the, the you know, low to mid-90s, Matt Harvey, not a lot of swinging strikes, not a lot of strikeouts. Um, so I'm sure, you know, the team will say, and he'll say that, the most recent start was him not feeling well coming into it. And that very well may be true. Uh, but the thing is, we don't really get to find out the answer for a little while. Right. Yeah, you know, tonight he uh, he was sitting about 92, 93, it seemed like, most of the game. He seemed to have very, very little control on his – not control on his breaking pitches. They just weren't reacting the way you would hope his breaking pitches would react. He struck out four, walked two, and gave up a home run. A bit of a cheap home run. He didn't give up a bomb or anything. But, you know, he's he's been looking more human than I think we're used to seeing. And he's so demonstrative on the mound, I think it compounds it when he has a bad start. Because you can see how pissed off he is at himself for not pitching so well. And I think that tends to cloud fan judgment already. You know, I have seen some people on Twitter tonight taking extreme positions on this and, you know, saying we should have traded him this offseason and all crazy things like that. But is there any uh, one part of his performance that's been the most troubling for you? For me, it's the decrease in velocity. Um, yeah, that that's uh, the same answer for me. That That's what I focus on uh, with these guys because it is just such a empirical thing. You know, it's yeah. not different camera angles and different conditions and all sorts of stuff can affect the way we perceive the motion of pitches uh, on television or, you know, even if you're at a game, unless you're really directly behind home plate, you know, it's hard to get a really good look. You know, when a pitch is working, I think more based on the results that it produces than, than you can trust your own eye with on a game to game basis. So, so for me, that's especially on TV, that's harder to judge. Um, so velocity is, is a thing. And obviously you have the, you know, plenty of other aspects of stat cast and pitch effects that are available to look at, but velocity is kind of the, the, the one that is right up front. It's easy to, you know, easy to look at and you know that it makes a difference. You know, that when it's going really, really well, that he can be, you know, near unhittable. So yeah, it's that. I and I think that is directly related to the strikeouts or the lack thereof. Mm-hmm. So to me, you know, being the start I was at, that was encouraging that he struck out guys like Matt Harvey usually does. And um, I yeah, I, I I don't know. Maybe I'm being blindly positive, but I still think he gets it back. Yeah, I mean, you know, you also have to consider tonight's a pretty miserable night outside. So to be pitching in these conditions is is not ideal, and so that could be part of why he is not throwing so well. You know, you said before he was saying he was under the weather yesterday, so who knows how under the weather he is today. And, 
not only that, but we've just been spoiled by this Mets team this year who hits a, who scores a lot of runs, and tonight they didn't score any runs. And, you know, he didn't pitch all that much worse than DeGrom pitched on Saturday, but because the Mets knocked around Matt Cain, it's a lot easier to look past DeGrom's performance a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the offense had come out of the gate so slow, but just for a few games, and then went on a tear. Uh, I think in their last 15 games... Coming into the Tuesday night game here, I think they had only scored fewer than three runs once. once. Yeah, and that was that was on Sunday against Madison Bumgarner, which you know that that can happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then even then, they only scored exactly three runs once. They scored four or more in thirteen out of fifteen games, uh, and often far more than that. So, you know, over the course of a night, that that sort of thing can happen, and. Uh, you, the the clip they were on, I think it was about 5.7 runs per game mm-hmm. in, in those last 15. Obviously, that would be uh, that would be the best offense in the National League or, or baseball mm-hmm. uh, at that clip. So you don't expect that to sustain itself. But you well, know, let's I talk think about that, the offense for a minute. Then, what do you think is a sustainable level for this team? I came into the year thinking they would be top 10 in runs per game. In, ba- in, in in obviously you know in Major League Baseball in the National League that wouldn't really be much of an accomplishment but <laughs> but yeah I I think that's where they end up you know I don't I I think there's very few easy outs uh, and you know it, it'll help if Travis Darno can be healthy more than unhealthy and you know play significantly more than Kevin Ploiecki. Uh and that's not to write him off entirely he you know he, he's not really shown us anything as a hitter yet, uh, but for the sake of success this season, Darno makes me a lot more comfortable. But even if Darno is out for a while, you know this team just has good players on it, top to bottom. And you know, even and you had written about this uh, on the site uh, today. You know, even the bench, maybe aside from Eric Campbell. Uh, you know, it's it, a solid set of players, and they could always go out and add somebody in July, mm-hmm. as they did last year. Uh, you know, it'll be in a different context, adding somebody to the existing roster they already have. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, I like this offense. I, for years, had said to any Yankees fans that I knew that if, you know, if they wanted to pass on their worries about being home run dependent to the Mets, I, I would <laughs> gladly sign up for it. Um, you know, it, it's I think it's funny when it, I, you heard bits and pieces of that over the last couple of weeks with the Mets. Um, but I think it's funny uh, when, when you talk about stringing together hits. People talk about that as if the home runs aren't hits. Aren't hits, yeah. And they are. So... Yeah, I mean, will they break the team home run record? Uh, I don't know, but it's nice to think that it's possible that they will. Um, you know, Neil Walker won't keep hitting home runs at this pace, but Lucas Lucas Duda will probably hit them a little more often than he did in the first month of the season. So I think there's some balancing out to happen there, but, you know, it, it, it helps make for an exciting team. You know, you think of the most exciting regular seasons the, the Mets have had, especially recently, uh, you know, 2006, that feeling like that they were never out of a game. I think that was for a similar reason. 
you have a spot. You know, even tonight, they're down 3 nothing, 7th, 8th, and ninth inning. You never really felt like the game was completely over. Right. Uh, and, you know, one one guy can come up, even if it's just a solo home run or a two-run home run that makes it a game instead of a three- or four-run deficit. Uh, you know, that that can be that can completely change the way you feel about a, a game uh, and the team. And I think when you have that ability for even your shortstop, who's your, you know, seven, eight hitter on a, on a night with a regular lineup to, uh, to hit one over the fence, then, uh, then you, you've got that, that hope and that possibility. Yeah. I think the team is going to hit, I think that you're going to see a pretty large shift in who's doing the hitting over the course of the season. You know, as you mentioned, Neil Walker's been incredibly hot, and he's already started to cool off a little bit. You know, I think the end of last week, uh, maybe Wednesday was the last time he hit a home run, which, you know, is still nine home runs in April. Anyone will take that. That's a that's a great month. But he's not going to be hitting nine home runs every month here on out. He probably won't be hitting five home runs every month here on out. But that's okay because, as you said before, you know, Duda will pick up the pace a little bit. Hopefully uh, Wright can hit a couple more home runs than we've seen so far. I'm sure Granderson will get his. Cespedes already has eight home runs, which is, uh, you know, an encouraging sign for him as well. So I don't think home runs are going to be the problem. Where I think this team might offensively run into a little bit of problem is um, against left-handed pitching, which is something they've done a little bit of so far this year, but we haven't seen them play too many left-handed starters. I believe it's only three, and one of them is Madison Bumgardner, who is, you know, arguably the top five pitchers in the National League. Uh, does their incompetence thus far against lefties worry you at all? Uh, no. <laughs> no. Me neither. Uh, yeah, I think... If you're looking for a place that might be problematic, I would say that's a place that might be, but I'm not too concerned. Yeah, I mean it's it's so early and I've seen so few of them. Uh if anything concerns me with it it's sort of how Terry Collins approaches a left-handed starting pitcher. Uh it's and I I get it. I I'm all for trying to take advantage of platoon situations and you know minimizing or maximizing the the opportunities you have with them. Uh but I don't know. Uh the other day I know it was Bumgarner, but I go into that game thinking, well, it is Madison Bumgarner. Uh, yeah, I'd rather see Duda and Graners and take a chance mm-hmm. than Flores and uh, and Campbell. Uh, you know, <clears throat> so I almost I understand sitting Granderson because historically he has not been great against lefties. But to right. me, sitting Duda is just the laziest type of platoon management you can have. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm, it was good. If you had to pick the lefties to sit and the ones to play, I'm glad that Conforto still got that start. Mm-hmm. Because don't, don't you get the feeling though, that because he struggled, Collins isn't going to do that next time. Uh, I mean that that's what I'm expecting. Yeah. But <laughs> it's not smart, but it's the Collins thing to do. Yeah. So, you know, we'll see. I, I I would lean more towards playing the regulars and, you know, splits. It's tough to draw any meaningful conclusions from any player, especially against left-handed pitching because it's so relatively uncommon. Um, but I, I'd rather 
give those guys those opportunities with you know with Duda to me it's it's like how much does he think about it now because he doesn't get that start right you know I, I'm it, I don't I, I want to avoid armchair psychology but if he's just playing every day is it as much of a talking point you know and he he certainly doesn't seem like he's phased by any of that but do we talk about Lucas Duda splits as much as if if he just plays against the left-handed pitchers? Um, I think even beyond that, though, you're not even you're also losing something on the defensive side of the ball when Duda sits because Campbell or Flores, whoever's playing first that day, they're no first baseman. You know, Duda's not Keith Hernandez out there, but he's certainly improved and he's a, he's an above-average defensive first baseman at this point in his career. I would say um, maybe you wouldn't agree with that. I'm not sure, but no, no, I I do. Uh, I, I don't know if every Mets fan would agree with that, but I <laughs> I do. You know, obviously the play in the World Series got a ton of attention, uh, and you know the the story surrounding it with the you know the scouting of it and all that stuff. But uh, I don't know. I mean, you watch him play regularly, and it's it's easy to overlook or underappreciate. A good first baseman in the field, you know, if they're if they're doing things well, you don't notice it much, you know. I mean, even and, just looking at his stretching this year, I think he's been considerably better stretching for those, uh, especially from you know with Wright's arm being less than it was a couple of years ago. His ability to stretch and get those outs when Wright's throwing the ball across the field has been quite impressive. I think. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean he's good at that. He's he's always solid stuff that's hit within his range, which which isn't as bad as you would think, you know, given his size and, and lack of speed. Uh, but he's good with that. You know, the just sort of the basic uh, situations with pitcher covering first, uh, turning double plays, that kind of thing. He, you know, he's on top of the fundamental part of the game. Absolutely. Um, you know, Wilmer Flores is an interesting case. You know, you mentioned he got the start on uh, on Sunday. He also got the start on Saturday for Wright. And Flores has been relatively anemic with the bat so far. But he really hasn't played much at all. You know, he's been in a couple of games. But he has not. Uh, he's only started a few. And, you know, it takes a little bit of time for someone like that to get to get his rhythm. Do you think that there is a better way to give Flores more at-bats? Or is this just going to be the Flores' role this season? The you know the guy who starts maybe once or twice a week to spell some folks but doesn't necessarily get more of a any sort of regular playing time. And if that's the case, is that a bad thing? I came into the year kind of thinking that those spots would be in a platoon with Neil Walker at second. Mm-hmm. But Walker's been as good as he's ever been as a right-handed hitter. Uh, and, and I like Walker a lot. That That's, you know, to me, platoon isn't necessarily an insult to a player. But I kind of figured that's where Flores would get the time. So I understand playing him at first. Um, and he's certainly my first choice on this roster when David Wright needs the day to play third. Uh, but so far, you know, David Wright, he's playing a lot. And, yeah. and that 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 really makes it tough, you know. I think I think they had mentioned on the broadcast um, 
at some point this week that Flores had the second most played appearances of any Met last year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, he, he looking right now, he, he had 510, and it's very hard to see him getting anywhere near that. He has uh, 35 so far this season. Yeah. So it's, I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing for the Mets, but it does make it, a, you know, a difficult spot for a guy who has held his own. Mm-hmm at the plate over the last couple of years, you know, or in his major league career, I should say, really. But, you know, hasn't broken out. Uh, the home runs were there last year, but, you know, aside from that, overall, he wasn't anything particularly special as a hitter. Uh, but he's in this he's in this interesting situation where, you know, the playing time might not be there, and it's it's hard to see it being there. You know, this year and in the future, unless David Wright needs, you know, a month or two months or something like that away. Yeah. He's in that weird position where he is the backup infielder for every single infield position right now. You know, Campbell would probably get the bulk of the time if, um, I guess, if Duda went down, you'd see Campbell more every day than you'd see Flores at first. But... Flores isn't the long-term solution to any of those positions except for third, I would say. You know, if um, if Walker were to go down, I don't know if Flores would shift over to be the everyday second baseman and they'd bring up somebody to be the middle infield relief, or if they would bring up somebody like a Dilson Herrera and keep Flores in his same position. So barring Wright needing considerable time off, I think you're right. I think he's Flores is just going to be that that 10th man that is coming out whenever needed, but isn't necessarily going to get the plate appearances. I think he was hoping to get. Yeah. And that, that's sort of a common theme on the, uh, on the bench right now, you know, Alejandro Diaz is in a similar spot. Um, you know, Plowecki obviously is, is in that starting role right now, but coming in, you know, they had talked in spring training about, Oh, Maybe we'll send him to Vegas so he can play baseball regularly instead of just being the backup here. Um, so, yeah, you, you have for the team. It's a great problem to have to mm-hmm. say, "Oh, our, <laughs> we have starters." You know, Keith mentioned it early on on the broadcast tonight. That uh, you know, he, I think he said something along the lines of, uh, "Like this is boring. Same eight guys every night." He said, "As a team, that's great." It means you're a good team, you know, when you're when you got the same guys going out there every night. And I think that's a that's a valid point. But it it's tough. I mean, I can't it, other than major league reps. You know, I, it, it's hard to say batting practice is it's batting practice. You know, I mean, you can take a lot of extra, but it's not seeing major league pitching. I think it, actually that was sort of an interesting thing with the team last year was that. The players they acquired had all been playing regularly with the teams they were on. And, you know, they all played a decent amount for the Mets down the stretch. Johnson, Uribe, certainly Cespedes. Uh, but, you know, you didn't go through a whole season where, where a guy might, you know, Flores might have 100 plate appearances or 120 at the All-Star break. <laughs> That's actually probably probable at this point, right? Yeah. I mean, I, again... And, you know, David Wright, if you didn't know anything was wrong with his back, you could look at him and say, oh, okay, all right, this, you know, maybe he doesn't have quite as much zip on his throws, that kind of thing. 
but I think if you didn't know that that was there, other than the off days, you you might not even notice it. You might say, "Oh, all right, he's you know he's on the wrong side of thirty, but he can still hit. You know, he can still make the plays we're accustomed to seeing him make. You know, maybe the throws aren't quite as good as they used to be, but." But yeah, I, I hope it. I hope it stays this way. I'd much rather talk about why Wilmer Flores, as likable as he is and as good of a kid as he is, I'd rather talk about why he doesn't have enough playing time than, you know, how he's holding up in David Wright's absence. <laughs> I uh, I concur. It's a good problem to have. Uh, the last bit we're going to talk about before getting to the emails is. We talked. We talked about Matt Harvey's struggles a little bit, and uh, although the results have been a little bit better for Jacob Degrom, he certainly hasn't looked quite as sharp as he had in the past. Um, you know, the last, especially last season and the season before. But you know, he was he made the first home start of the year, and then he had his not disabled list disabled list uh, run when uh, he was on the uh, emergency the family emergency list, and then he was skipped to start with his lat injury or lat soreness, whatever they're calling it. But since he's come back, again, the results have been there. He is, you know, he has not lost the game this year. He has not had a blowout game this year. But he's looked considerably less sharp. The velocity's been down a little bit on his pitches as well. Uh, is there anything worrisome about DeGrom, or is this just a small sample size issue that you're willing to look past? Uh, I would say it, it, it's weird with the with these two pitchers for me because you know coming into last year, I didn't think Degrom was going to be bad. I just had, for whatever reason, you know the 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 background he had coming out of the minors, what he had done in, in his first season, uh, you know in in the big leagues. Uh, I just I had doubt. I don't know, you know, I don't know why it's probably unfair. Uh, so his velocity throughout spring training and in the early going of the regular season has had me very concerned, even though the results have been good. I mean, spring training game results, I, I don't, I just don't care. Uh, but, but the results were there all along, uh, despite him not throwing as hard as we're used to seeing. Um, and, and I guess, I don't know what it is. With Harvey, I assume that everything's going to be good. And with DeGrom, I have that that little bit of doubt. And it's, you know, it's over the last couple of years, DeGrom's been as good as pretty much anybody in baseball, you know, outside of sort of the freakish Cy Young performances we've had from a couple of guys um, in the game. So, <clears throat> yeah, I, I'm I'm at a spot with him. The velocity has gone up a little bit in each one of his starts. You know, I hope it really was the lat issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would it would make sense that you know, just based on where the muscle is and the timing of it and everything, it, it would make sense if that was sort of hampering his ability to really you know let go of his pitches. Uh, if it keeps going in the direction it's going, or even if it stays where it is, you know, if he's averaging ninety four to ninety five, that would be. You know, that, that, I'd be very comfortable with that. Were you watching Saturday's game? Uh, yes. I was at Saturday's game, and I was where my seats were. I couldn't get a great view of home plate. But he was reacting like he was being squeezed quite a bit during the game. 
Uh, was the umpiring particularly harsh to him on Saturday? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, it, it didn't stand out that way to me. Okay. Because, you know, the four walks is something that is really unusual for DeGrom. And right. if, if you watched his body language, he was he was quite uh, quite unhappy with, with some of the umpiring calls. And a friend of mine actually texted me during the game with a couple of screenshots from whatever app she was using to watch the game. And they were showing, you know, pitches down the middle called ball four or whatever the case may be. So I wasn't sure if that was just a product of, of, you know, poor officiating or if there is something to his control issue in that game as well. But, you know, as you said, the results have been there. He's only given up one extra base hit the entire season. He's only given up two earned runs the ent- you know, across his three starts. And, uh, you know, he's looked, he's looked DeGrom-ish. He hasn't quite looked as polished or as powerful, but he has been effective. And so... While I am worried about the velocity again, I do think that between the lat issue and, you know, um, as a fellow new dad, I could understand the the mental taxing that that takes on you, especially even after you get the okay that your kid is doing better. It's probably still a pretty stressful situation to be in. So maybe as all of that starts to calm down a little bit, I could see DeGrom, you know, doing maybe not quite as well as he did last year because last year was a freakishly great performance. But I, I'm not overly concerned about either of the Mets starters just yet. Talk to me in a month and yeah. we'll see. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's about fair. And even in a month, I wouldn't be... Uh, well, I guess I'll put it this way. In a month, if Harvey's ERA is still high, but the velocity is sort of coming back and it looks more like he did you know, in, in the start against the Reds, uh, than he did it against the Braves tonight. Uh, I'm not really going to be concerned. I think the ERA will figure itself out. Um, you know, and then same thing with Degrom. Like I said, you know, if he if he sits in that range that he was in in his last start, it maybe ticks up a little bit. Uh, I'm not going to be overly concerned with that either. Uh, the I guess the concern, if a month from now they're both averaging 92, 93 miles an hour on their fastballs, then you're going, all right, you know, the, the lat issue is in the past. Harvey's medical issue from the end of spring training is in the past. His, you know, feeling sick uh, this week presumably will be, you know, long in the past. So that's what I would think would be concerning if, you know, if their pitches aren't being thrown the way that they normally are a month from now, uh, that would concern me more than, uh, than results. I agree with that. All right. We have one email this week. Uh, if you want to email the show, you can email us at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. This email is from Manifesto Dave. Dearest Met Podcasters, Terry Collins is still liable to blow out any blow out any or all of our great arms because he seems too eager to satisfy the old schoolers who think that is how real men pitch and or to avoid offending his heat of a battle testosterone-fueled 20-something flamethrowers who want to stay in the game to achieve .00025 better ERA or additional W in their meaningless career record book. 
Either way, this seems like the singular barrier between us Mets fans and being reasonably ecstatic for the next 500 to 700 baseball games. Forget the fact that we are also likely to win more games by pulling these guys earlier than later, along with a real chance of getting to a Game 6 in the 2015 World Series. I ask you with all the incredulity how we... I ask you with all incredulity, how are we dealing with this shit in 2016? Sentimentality be damned, Terry Collins deserves to lose his job. Either that or the Mets need to hire an Ernst & Young type pitching auditor to manage the workload. Can Sandy actually do anything about this now, or has his chance to make a change passed like Bobby Bonilla's contract, used or still does, pass through waivers? Thanks and regards, Manifesto Dave. (laughs) Okay, so... uh, I, 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 guess, I, I checked out. I the, checked out at the Bobby Bonilla contract reference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's the uh, that's my kryptonite at this point as a Mets fan. Um, but let's let's get at the sort of the heart of the question here. Can Sandy Alderson do anything about Terry Collins, or would the team have to magnificently flame out for Collins to not be managing this team at this time next year? Uh, yeah, no, I think that's the only way he's not managing the team. And it's, it's one of those things that I certainly understand the frustration from time to time. Even tonight, I thought, okay, Harvey really wasn't feeling well. He comes in, you know, they said he had got an IV for fluids coming into the game because he had felt sick. And, uh, he goes out there, he's clearly not on top of his game, not, not as sharp in terms of velocity or really anything else. But, you know, he's out there trying to grind through the sixth inning. And, you know, I I get it. I get why the pitcher would want to sort of stay in his routine. But, uh, you know, there there was a part of me thinking after the fifth inning, you know, look, he's not feeling well. He's not really his best self. It's still just a one-run game you know, maybe he should come out here. So I can definitely relate to that frustration of, of sticking with the starter too long. Uh, I will say, at I was at World Series Game 5. Uh, I was chanting as loud as anybody for Harvey. I wanted him to stay in. I was totally fine with that decision. Obviously, the game did not end uh, the way we all wanted to end. I mean, to be, it to end, to be but, fair, you were probably fine with the decision up until he walked the first batter. Yeah. I mean it yeah I I remember the the uh the roar when he came back out more <laughs> more than anything else that happened afterwards but uh we also have to like as a collective fan base let that inning go that tends to be something that people yes. hold on to very much so that wasn't going to change the world series results it might change right. the game's I mean, results not the world series results I really don't think yeah I mean of course you never know and and I would have been as positive as anybody if they'd taken it back to Kansas City and everything. But uh, it's the same thing going when the Mets, uh, when the Mets, Stephen Mets has me <laughs> using his name in place of the team's name. When the Mets last won the World Series, uh, you know, it, it was unfair to focus too much, I think, on one play, you know, with Buckner. Obviously, it was... Or even the Beltron curveball in 06. Right. That's what I was. Yep, uh, I was Buckner and Beltran both. Uh, you know, it, it, there's a lot of things that go into winning or losing a playoff series. Um. So yeah, it, it certainly wasn't just that one, but but yeah, I, I, overall, 
I, I, I see the point with Terry Collins and the young starters, but you know, you look at it at the end of the year and, you know, I know they skipped some turns and, you know, we used the six man rotation, but at the end of the year, the workloads weren't really extraordinary. Uh, and I, I think he was a little bit better last year having that many young arms in terms of not going too extreme with pitch counts. Um, you know, I, I, I should, uh, you know, I should have a little more research behind this at, <laughs> at, at this stage here, but, but yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm fairly comfortable in saying that last year you didn't have guys routinely going 115 pitches or more in starts. So it's a, there's, you know, you have two aspects of it. You have balancing the long-term health of the player and then the chances of winning the game at hand. Uh, and in terms of the game at hand, I, I can forgive him a little bit, I think, because these pitchers are so talented, because he wants to see, like, all right, well, third time through the order or fourth time, you know, if, if a pitcher gets to that point, hey, you know, th- this guy might be better than, than the relief pitcher that I have available for me in this sixth inning or seventh inning. Uh, and... You know, I, I think the Mets bullpen is good, uh, and maybe it, maybe he sort of adjusts over the course of the season. Uh, but yeah, I'm, this is a very wordy way of saying I, I'm not on the uh, Fire Terry team. <laughs> I think you heard those voices strongest this season after the Jim Henderson uh, kerfuffle from a few weeks ago when he essentially sent him out there a day after throwing his career high pitches. And, you know, unsurprisingly looking pretty flat when he did so. And his velocity was way, way down. You know, I think if there's one thing that Collins does particularly poorly, it is manage his pitching staff. And part of that has to go on Dan Worthen as well. You know, I, I don't think that this is uh, solely Collins making decisions in a bubble. But, you know, is Collins a great in-game strategist? No, he's not. Does he probably overtax the arms both in his starting rotation and his bullpen? Yeah, he does. But at this point, I really can't see the team making a change unless something incredibly drastic happens. Yeah. I mean, he he went to the World Series with them uh, in a year that they didn't really have expectations to do it. Uh, and even if they fail to make the playoffs this year, and I don't think that's likely... Uh, you know, and I, I think most people would agree, but even if they failed at that, I don't necessarily see him getting fired because of it. He was, he was a good soldier during some really shitty years. And this front office seems to appreciate how good of a soldier he was and how much of a team player he's been, especially when you consider the way the front office operates and the way that Collins operates are, are not exactly in sync and so for Collins to be as willing to, um, you know, go outside of his comfort zone a little bit in terms of some of the more analytical work, although who knows how much he's actually listening to that, but just the fact that he's able to operate in a system that is more analytical than perhaps his background suggests he's comfortable with, I think he's around through the end of this contract, uh, although I do not see the team bringing him back for another contract. Um, 
But yeah, the, the other, you know, elephant in the room perhaps is that I don't know who would necessarily replace him. I know new bench coach Dick Scott is well liked, but I really couldn't tell you a damn thing about his um you know, his abilities as a as a manager just yet because we haven't seen him do much as a bench coach this year. There haven't been too many games that well, first of all, Collins hasn't been ejected yet, so you haven't seen him solo managing a game just yet. But also, there haven't been too many games that have been nail biters up to the end where you really see where a bench coach's um you know hand on the shoulder of the manager telling him, giving him some advice or offering some suggestions. We haven't seen too many of those games yet, so it's hard to tell what exactly his influence is. You know, somebody, an emailer a few weeks ago talked about Bob Guerin's influence being missed, and we sort of, we didn't disagree with the fact that maybe it is, but it's kind of hard to tell that. Even, even in a season, even at the end of the season, it'll be hard to essentially tell what's different when you're swapping out Scott for Garen. But I think especially at this point in the season, it's really, really hard to pinpoint that. So I don't know what the answer is. If Collins were to be fired, who would even take the job if it was somebody internally? So we're rambling here to basically say we don't think Terry's going anyplace. And uh, yeah, so Manifesto Dave, I think we're going to have to deal with Collins for the rest of this year. And probably the rest of next year. Maybe if the Mets can win the World Series this year, Collins will retire. But I think unless that happens, more than likely we're dealing with Collins through the end of the 2017 season. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's that about sums it up. All right. Thanks, well, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. As I said at the top of the show, I don't have a scouting background like Jeffrey did, and I think that the idea of looking at potential future Mets is an incredibly important part of this podcast, and I want to keep that going. So we have a number of folks on the site who write about the miners in detail and who are great at doing it. So I'm going to be inviting them on the show each week to talk about a prospect or two that excites them or that has been blowing up or had a great week or something that's newsworthy for the week. So for this first episode... We have Noel Purcell talking about David Thompson. All right. Thanks for having me, Brian. Uh, the prospect I want to talk to you about today is a guy currently playing third base for the Columbia Fireflies in the Sally League. It's 2015 fourth-round pick David Thompson. Now, Thompson was a uh, originally drafted by the Yankees in the 38th round of the 2012 draft coming out of high school. He actually played his high school ball. Uh, in Miami, and then went to the University of Miami. Um, played two years there, uh, originally playing both football and baseball. Uh, a number of injuries, and I would assume the future of his baseball career, gave him to, uh, let him to give up football, which turned out to be far for the better. Uh, he stayed healthy his junior year. He hit really, really well. He hit 333, 445, 658. Uh, in 64 games with 19 homers and 18 doubles, and he struck out fewer than 10% of the time he got to the plate, which is uh, really impressive, especially in the ACC. Currently at Columbia, he's hitting 278, 346, 467, so a nice 813 OPS with two homers, nine doubles, 
Uh, he also has a steal in there, and he's striking out at about a 3-to-1 rate to his walks. Uh, so, while it's certainly not below um, about 10%, it's manageable. And I think as he continues to grow and get more confidence in his swing, uh, that strikeout rate can drop. He's a, a smart hitter. Uh, he's incredibly athletic, obviously, playing football. Very quick hands to the ball. Uh, his ability to stick at third base is very questionable. He's he committed uh, he committed a litany of errors last year with Brooklyn, uh, who he also didn't hit at all with uh, playing short season ball after getting drafted. But he's been hitting this year, obviously, or else wouldn't be spotlighting. Uh, and he's already looked uh, shaky at the at third to begin with uh, when he was drafted. A lot of people. Assumed he'd end up at first, maybe maybe uh, an outfield corner, but most likely first base. But there's not exactly a um, position, you know, that he he wouldn't be able to hit his way out of. He is a prospect whose bat is going to absolutely carry him, and uh, if he can hit continuously the way he is now and at a greater level, continue to improve. Uh, he's a guy who could be knocking on the door of a promotion uh, as the summer gets going, for, for sure. Uh, obviously, he spent three years in college, but he's relatively raw considering all the injuries. So treating him like your typical 22-year-old prospect isn't necessarily the best move. Um, but David Thompson got to look out for. Thanks, Noel. He wanted me to specifically say that he really thinks first base is the is the spot for him. He mentioned corner outfield, but after his shoulder surgery, he feels like the arm strength just would only be there for a first baseman. So caveat added, and thanks again, Noel. Now, um, well, I'm just going to let Steve introduce this little segment himself. Hey, listeners, it's me, Steve Seiper. So the cat's out of the bag, and Jeff Padnastro will no longer be appearing as the host of Amazing Avenue Audio. Among many of the things that this means is that we're no longer going to be having our IFK Gothenburg updates. Uh, for you, those of you tuning in to get your fix of international sports, don't fret, because we will be adopting another foreign team and sharing updates on future shows. Um, since I'm going to be handling this, I want to stick with baseball because baseball is the best, obviously. And after a semi-democratic process uh, in Amazing Avenue Audio Slack, we chose to pick a team from Japan... Uh, for going Korea, Taiwan, Netherlands, and Germany. In a much less democratic fashion, I decided that the team would be the Hokkaido Nippon Ham Fighters. Um, the last Mets, connect, last Mets player connected to the Fighters was Bobby Keppel, who was their first-round draft pick in 2000, and he never actually played on the Mets. So the connection is admittedly a little tenuous. I mean, why not pick the Chibalat Marines, uh, a team that had the most alumni on the Mets, uh, greats such as Benny Agbayani, Craig Brazell, Dickie Gonzalez, Matt Franco, Masato Yoshi, Satoru Komayama, and Bobby V? Or why not the uh, Rakuten Golden Eagles, known as the so-called Mets of Japan, thanks to a terrible, terrible, terrible 38-97 and 97 record in their first year? and their upset of the uh, heavily favored Yomiuri Giants in seven games in the 2012 Japan Series? Well, besides my own personal biases, I have one word. Shinjo. That's right. Shinjo. After 16 seasons uh, playing baseball in 
the MLB and the NPB. Uh, Tiyoshi Shinjo won his first and only professional baseball championship with the Fighters in 2006. So tune in next week and find out how the Nippon Ham Fighters are doing. Thank you all so much for listening to episode 184 of Amazing Avenue Audio. Please go to AmazingAvenue.com right now. I'll wait. No, seriously, check out the site. Check out all the amazing articles that we have from our contributors that were on the show tonight, as well as those that haven't been on yet, but hopefully will be on one day soon. We're also on all the relevant social media sites, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Just search for Amazing Avenue. If you want to email the show, you can do so at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. All the folks that were on the show tonight are on Twitter as well, and you can tweet at all of them. I am at Brian Needs a Nap. Chris is at Chris McShane. Kate is at Kate E. Feldman. Aaron is at APY5000. Steve Schreiber is at underscore Mr. Met. Can't forget that underscore. Uh, Noel is at Nameless Ranger. And Steve Saipa is at Steve Saipa. You're listening to the show right now, so you know how to find it. But if you want to tell other people about the show, they can listen to it at AmazingAvenue.com. They can listen to it or download it directly from BlogTalkRadio.com. They can subscribe in Stitcher and in iTunes and probably in some other podcatchers that I'm not familiar with, frankly. Um, But we hope that you rate and review and subscribe in your podcatcher of choice. We will be back next week with lots more fun and hopefully interesting conversation about the Mets right here at Amazing Avenue Audio. Good night.